Hello, dear friends and freedom lovers, and welcome to You're the Voice, the podcast that reminds you how important your voice is and the role you play in the world. My name is Efrat, and I'm an independent journalist and podcaster with an extensive background in tech and marketing. In this podcast, I interview intriguing humans, putting the spotlight on their stories and views. My guest today is James Corbett, an award-winning investigative journalist and a lecturer on geopolitics and open-source journalism. James started the Corbett Report website in 2007 as an outlet for independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics. Since then, he has written, recorded, and edited thousands of hours of audio and video, including podcasts, documentaries, and online video series. I hope you enjoy the show. Please share it forward, and remember, you're the voice. I've met James... Uh a couple of months ago in a conference in the UK called the Better Way Conference. Uh, I've been following James, the Corbett Report, for quite a while before that, and so it was really great for me to meet James in person. Uh, we didn't have too much time to chat in the conference, so I asked him to have this chat with me now, so I'm very happy we're able to do that. But just to give a short, like a few words about you, so James is an award-winning investigative journalist. He has the James, uh, um, sorry, the Corbett Report, uh, which was founded in 2007, uh, which is an independent listener-supporter alternative news source about topics such as 9-11 truth, false flag terror, the Big Brother police state, eugenics, geopolitics, the central bank fraud, uh, and there is so much more. There, there is so much information on this website, so everybody go check out uh, CorbettReport.com. Uh, James was uh, a brilliant speaker and host at the Better Way Conference, uh, and you can watch that as well if you want. But James, can you start by sharing your background with me, where you started, how it all came to be with what you're doing today, uh, plus living where you live. You're, I think you're originally from Canada, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, um, well, thank you for having me on. And it is kind of strange that I am here doing this kind of work at all, because it is absolutely the last thing that I ever would have imagined. And I never expected my life to go in this direction. But I guess you can't always plan in which direction your life is going to go. So yes, I was a Canadian born and raised. I, uh, I spent a year in Ireland studying Anglo-Irish literature. After that point, I was eyeballs deep in student debt because although I had avoided all student debt up through my undergrad at the University of Calgary, but then spending a year in Ireland studying at Trinity College was very expensive. So I had to suddenly start making money in order to, at the very least, uh, pay back my student loan bills. So I thought, well, how can I make money and still continue to avoid reality? So I decided to become an English teacher in Japan. <laughs> I ended up moving to Japan for one year, just one year to teach English. And 19 years later, I am still here. So that's how that goes sometimes. Wow. So I was just an English, wow. I was just a lowly English teacher and had no particular training in journalism other than my English degree, if that counts. Yeah. And I had no particular, I, I was always politically interested, but it was never my primary focus, etc., And then I guess reality struck me in the face about 2006 is when I really started to fall down the proverbial rabbit hole, discovering, oh, reality isn't at all what I was taught throughout my life. And actually, real reality makes a lot more sense, but unfortunately, is a lot darker than what they tend to teach you in school. So I, uh, I spent uh, the better part of, well, a year or so falling down the rabbit hole before I decided, well, this information is too important. It has completely and utterly transformed my view of the world. So I better start doing what I can to spread this information because I don't, look, I don't have all the answers. I'm not some genius here, but I just know this is important information and it will change people's lives. So I decided at the time, 2007, I decided to start a podcast. And if anything, I thought I was late to the game because podcasting was already several years <laughs> old at that point, you know? How wow. am I going to make a name for myself? <laughs> How early you were. <laughs> well, it, as it turns out, podcasting had a bright upside. And uh, so, yes, I was very lucky to get in on the podcasting game quite early, as it were. And as a result of that, um, I've been able to, over the course of 16 years, build up 
enough of an audience that I could survive even being taken off of YouTube, which I was a couple of years ago for daring to tell the truth about the past few years and all the craziness of the rising biosecurity state, all of that kind of nonsense. Anyway, so I've been at this for quite a while now, and I'm luckily able to do this for my full-time living now. I, I've been doing this full-time for over a decade at this point, so here we are, wow. 2023. Amazing. Can, can you tell me what was the first uh, um, truth that you found out that got you to, to dig deeper into sure. the rabbit hole? Sure. I mean, I, there are probably things from my childhood that I could point to. Uh, JFK came out when I was a young boy, and I remember seeing that and being fairly convinced, yeah, it probably wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone. So I was always willing to question received history on various subjects. And uh, I do recall having a a profound experience in 2000, I want to say 2004, shortly after I moved here to Japan, sitting in my apartment in Japan watching the uh, Gandhi biopic and watching the scene where Gandhi is uh, being beaten by the South the British in South Africa for daring to burn his uh, registration cards. They were trying to uh, make all the Indians in South Africa carry around their papers at all times. So um, they started burning them as a part of nonviolent protest and getting beaten and thrown in jail. And here I was sitting with my foreign identification registration card sitting in my pocket as I am required to do by law here in Japan, not being a Japanese citizen. I have to be able to prove who I am at all times. And it had never even occurred to me. It never even crossed my mind that this was the type of thing people were willing to be beaten to a pulp for and thrown in wow. jail and all of this. It was a huge deal and a huge issue when they first started doing this. Fast forward a century and uh, yeah, whatever. It's just a card. I just carry it around everywhere. What does it matter? So that was sort of an arrow through the brain moment. I had another arrow through the brain moment um, in 2006 crossing um, back into Canada to go to my friend's wedding. I was going to be the best man at his wedding. And uh, I got, as a single man, traveling, and I had a beard at that time, and traveling by myself back from Japan. So, of course, I get the full treatment. Uh, I get the special thing on my uh, customs card as I'm going through customs, and they pull me aside for the, let's go through your bags and ask you all these uncomfortable questions treatment. So they're literally going through my bags, pulling everything out, looking at the book that I'm reading and asking me, do you like this book? As if that's like a significant question. Oh my God. It's going to determine if I'm a terrorist. They go through my cell phone. They're asking me about the pictures on my cell phone. Who is this person? It's, it's my friend. <laughs> like, what, what is this? Uh, they wow. pull up my diary and they start reading it and they say, can we take a copy of this? And I said, I don't know. What are my rights here? Like, what process is this? I have no idea what's going on right now. So that was a definite eye opener, which made me realize that the whole war of terror hysteria well, maybe there's something going on here wow. that I'm not being told. But it was really the latter part of 2006 where I started encountering information about 9-11 truth and starting starting mm -hmm. to question what really happened there. Because for years, I'd been quite quite averse and resistant to the idea that it was some sort of like, yeah, I get conspiracies happen, but this is too far. Uh, it's disrespectful. All of that. Well, I got that conditioning knocked out of me. Surrounding the fifth anniversary of 9-11, there was a lot of activism going on at the time. There was a lot in the news. And it's, that started to filter through, and I was browsing the uh, Wild West of YouTube at that time, back before it was heavily censored, and finding all this information, and that started the snowball rolling downhill. And I started imbibing more and more documentaries and alternative news and information. And by the point at which I realized, I, I, okay, yeah, clearly we've been lied to about 9-11, but, I mean, how can this work, and what does this all mean? And then when I started to look into the monetary system and central banking and all of that, oh, okay, everything's a lie. All right. That's how it ties out. Yeah, okay. Got it. Yeah. So it was at that point that I decided to start with the website, um, I'm not a particularly spontaneous person. I guess I moved halfway around the world on a whim and that kind of thing. But generally speaking, <laughs> I like to plan my moves out and have some sort of plan. But for this, I just thought, I don't know. I have no idea what I'm doing, but let's just, I'm going to start a website and I'm going to start a podcast. And I did never look back. And uh, that was 16 years ago now. Wow. That is so great, and that is so brave of you to turn this into your, you know, your life's mission and your work. Um, it's amazing how when we sometimes discover certain information, we can't go back. I, you know, I had a similar experience, but only recently, just in the past few years for me. You know, I was living my great matrix life until uh, <laughs> about three, four years ago. Mm -hmm. 
um, I always, you know, peeked into some truths and discovered some things, but never took them too seriously, never wanted to, you know, ruin my comfortable life. And then three years ago with COVID, I had my, my real, you know, eye-opening moments. And uh, wow, I had not gone back since. Yeah. You know, I was a chief marketing officer of global companies. I was making lots of money and working my corporate jobs for, for many, many years, doing really well for myself. And I put all of that aside to start doing journalism, you know. And like you, I was never trained to be a journalist, but I came with background of about 20 years in content creation and delivering messages and and being able to convey stories to people and simplify things. Um, and so I said, okay, I'm taking my my bag of tools and starting to do that because that is important enough, yeah. uh, especially for the you know uninformed people of Israel. Right, <laughs> sure. I often, I often anything. poo-poo my English background and education and what was the point of going to college and getting that degree. But to, to be realistic about it, I mean, at, at any rate, shaping and uh, honing my skills of being able to simply craft an argument and put it forward a thesis yep. and state clearly why I believe that thesis and here's the argument and here's the evidence, you know, and that is genuinely helpful for being able to try to communicate, especially things of the nature and complexity and and controver controversial nature of this information. It's good to be able to state as clearly as possible what it is that you believe and why you believe it. A hundred percent, one thousand percent, and that's why you know, yeah, I don't believe in academia, and I, I'm not sending people to go get their their academic degrees. But at the same time, if they do take a degree and and they and at least they get the skills of how to learn, how to ask questions, how to answer them, then that's a good enough skill to continue a life with, no matter what you choose to do later. So I, I fully agree with you. Okay, so to my next question, I'm, I've watched your brilliant documentary film. I think it's really brilliant and it's really well done called How Big Oil Conquered the World. It's not a new movie. It's, it's relatively old. It's a few years old, right? Yeah, 2017. Five, and, like or no, wait. 17. Is that right? And then the follow-up was Why Big Oil I Conquered so. the World, which was 2018. Is that correct? I might have those dates wrong. It's been something a long time. like that. I, I I saw that it was a few years old. Yeah. yeah, and and everybody should watch that movie. How big oil conquered the world? It's a must. And I'm I'm also going to post post that on my uh, social media channels after our conversation. But in that documentary, you get to the part where John D. Rockefeller hired Ivy Lee to invent PR, mm. public relations, as a tactic to whitewash or launder his name and reputation from a very hated rich man with an oil monopoly to a welcomed good man, yeah. right? To be perceived as a good man. Now, I'm a marketeer. I come from a background of 20 years of marketing, doing PR, doing, you know, thought leadership and trying to build people's reputation and, and brands and, uh, you know, discovering how this came about. I know more history about it, but this is like the perfect example, the perfect tactic to take when you have someone who is heavily hated and controversial turning their reputation around yeah. just to use that as a tool to then um, bring forward other interests or other agendas into play is, is simply brilliant. And that tactic is since then heavily used with other people. We see that, you know, for example, I, I immediately thought about Pablo Escobar, right, mm -hmm. being this <laughs> really dangerous person and how he, he then became the person who everybody loved because he started handing out money for free to people uh, in Colombia, and then Bill Gates, obviously, yeah. which is our favorite yeah. example, yeah. you know, this beautiful philanthrop uh, doing such great things for the world. Well, people really don't know the bad stuff that is behind him. So I'm curious, you know, I'm, I'm starting with that, like your, your take on how this tactic mm. is being used today in the world and, and where we see it happening today. Sure. Well, yeah, I don't, I've never studied marketing or PR, um, but I would assume if, if they don't teach about this, the, uh, this as a case study of how to basically um, completely transform someone's per public character, they should, because this is the uh, template. <laughs> that they created the template for the Rockefeller family. So Ivy Ledbetter Lee, um, 
uh, was uh, obviously a genius at what he was doing. And um, it still resonates today because still there are people who, if to the extent that they know anything about John D. Rockefeller Sr., it would be the March of Dimes and something about, like, people leave dimes on his gravestone, which is this weird Egyptian obelisk, but let's not look deeply into that anyway. He's associated with that, oh yeah, because during the Depression or around those times, he'd always be seen handing out dimes yeah. to people, right? But how was he seen handing out dimes to people, because, of course, they set up a movie camera, which, back in the day, wasn't exactly like your phone, ubiquitous everywhere. No, that was a set-up, staged movie camera in a scene <laughs> where he's got a dime for the little boy. Here you go, little boy, invest this money well. And, oh, isn't that nice, the, the billionaires handing out dimes to poor little orphans. Um, and, hey, we can look at that sort of obvious trickery and scoff, oh, as if we'd fall for that today. But, oh, look at Warren Buffett with his ice creams. Oh, he's always licking ice cream cones. It's so cute. Oh, the, oh, or Bill Gates. Yeah, I think I vaguely recall people really hated him back in the 1990s and understood Microsoft was an evil empire. But I don't know. And then there were all these fun, cool internet memes that came up in the 2000s just spontaneously about how Gates is a good guy who's giving away his wealth for the benefit of all mankind. Huh, it's just wonderful how this works. So yes, the same tricks. Um, very, very little difference has uh, has been made to them. Um, and in the Rockefeller's case, as I go through in the Big Oil documentary, that was done specifically to convert the mind-boggling economic capital that the Rockefeller family had amassed, that, that fortune and wealth, into political capital. Because what's the point of just money piling up? It, who cares at a certain point? Um, no, what you want is power. You want to be able to shape and order society on the back of that accrued capital. And as I document, the Rockefellers got into education first, and then healthcare mm -hmm. and politics and everything else you can imagine, everything of, of substance and importance. And it's perhaps no surprise then that the Gates family, uh, not just Bill Gates, but his father, um, specifically modeled themselves and their quest uh, into the world of philanthropy on the Rockefellers and the template that they had left. And they said, everywhere we went in the field of philanthropy, the Rockefellers had been there first. And so they modeled their uh, their philanthropy upon that principle. And of course, it is framed so, as philanthropy. So if we have Ivy Lee, I'm just stopping you for a second, and just to recap, if we have Ivy Lee modeling PR for these guys, mm. then we have Gates modeling philanthropy for these guys. Well, and then these mm. two models are being sent out to the world, being mimicked sure. again and again and again yeah. for various purposes. Well, it was really, it was I, John D. Rockefeller Jr. that served as the model for mm -hmm. the philanthropy because he became, as senior people knew him as the oil baron, but Jr. grew up in that wealth and from the beginning he was always, his whole task in life was how to steward over the what became the Rockefeller Foundation, the philanthropic endeavors and the transformation of that name of Rockefeller from oil, which was the only thing people would have thought about, say, turn of the 20th century, just a few decades later, philanthropy. It was the Rockefeller Foundation, the Rockefeller Library, the Rockefeller University, all of these things that they had uh, basically put their name on. And so Gates obviously took that exact template and applied it to the Gates name so that Gates is no longer Microsoft and the evil and uh, the, the software monopolist empire that he decreed in the billions. Of, no, no, no. Now Gates is global public health. And at least until the past few years, I think more people are starting to see through that charade. But it was very effective, I think, for the first couple of decades of the 21st century, at least until he really started trying to flex that power. But yes, essentially what we are dealing with are templates, and they are templates because they are exceptionally effective. And yes, perhaps you do need to have billions of dollars to throw around for that to be so effective. But at any rate, it certainly is one way of converting wealth into political capital. Amazing. Now, I want to stop on the point that you made before that the first place where Rockefeller went into is education and how critical the point of education is to start taking over other areas. Because yeah. once you take over education and you bring in indoctrination, you, in your film you brilliantly show how they didn't want people to be educated anymore. They wanted them to be the working class you know, uh, middle class type of people that will produce and, and be able to work for them in their factories. And so there was, a, um, there was an agenda there to 
make people less knowledgeable, less educated, so that they can work for them. And at the same time, they wanted to manipulate the topics and the areas that are being taught in schools and universities so they can then take over all the other areas they wanted to, started, starting from medicine through pharma with agriculture and taking over the food supply through, through the Green Revolution, obviously, and then gene engineering. And then in the end of your film, you're taking us to the climate change we'll talk about in a second. But, you know, the education is such an important pillar to then take over the world. And I think what we're seeing today, like if I'm bringing you to today and how we are, like I want to draw some conclusions on what's happening, we're seeing how the education system today is infiltrated with lots of agendas, obviously, you know, green and and climate everywhere. I'm seeing what my son is learning in school. Mm. But obviously the gender agenda, heavily indoctrinated, and that ties in with eugenics for me and, you know, with mm. just simply making people more confused. And so how are you seeing this playing out today? Like, because this is like key point, I think, sure. for people to understand yeah. how devious they are mm. in their ways and how they're trying to, to do this all over again yeah. now. I mean, well, they're not trying to do it all over again. They're just continuing, continuing to do the, the same, the quest, like yes. use the same thing. Exactly. So for people yeah. who don't know about this, it's probably useful to have some specific point data points that they can look to because how could, I mean, education is just a good in and of itself. So who cares who's paying for it, right? Um, but some specific examples that you could point to was the takeover of, for example, in America, specifically the teaching of American history, which was something that was pointed to um, mm -hmm. by the uh, uh, Norman Dodd, um, who was a researcher, a congressional researcher, who was researching the history of the tax-exempt foundations, including, of course, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, the Ford Foundation, etc., and their influence upon American society. And he found that their basically takeover of the, his, the subject of history was being used to essentially form a cadre of people who were shaping the story of America for Americans in order to alter the mindset of Americans. And specifically in the, uh, in the records that he was examining in the Carnegie Endowment um, archives from its inception as a board in the late 19. Zeros into the early 1910s, specifically the point that they were talking about in their board meetings was how can we get the American public more interested with and, and on board with the project of getting America embroiled in a major war, which was the furthest thing in the mind from the average American, but there were people who were already looking ahead to what would become World War I and America's eventual entry into it. And how do we start shaping the American mind to accept this? Well, taking over history and, and basically um, forming a certain narrative of how America came about and what it is, is one way of doing that. Another specific example that we can look at is the Flexner Report, which was funded with help of, I believe it was Rockefeller and Carnegie, um, funded uh, a, a sort of survey into how, um, the, how doctors were being trained throughout the, the United States at that time. And this report ultimately came back with the recommendation, surprise, surprise, well, what we need is more of a standardized system and a way of um, making sure that all, it's not just quacks who are getting pieces of paper from whatever and fly-by-night kind of uh, college. No, we need to standardize this and make a sort of medical system with certified medical doctors and all of this. So from that, you, you get, obviously, the development of the American Medical Association. You also get the standardization of the curriculum of certified and approved and government-sponsored medical colleges that can teach proper medicine. And that's the point at which you start seeing the takeover of allopathic medicine from naturopathic medicine. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not, not let, let uh, food be your medicine or, or anything along those lines. No, now it's take these pharmaceuticals, which are gen generally derived from petrochemical products, ka-ching, ka-ching for the Rockefellers, by the way, but also... This is now the way that we, we cut and burn and slash, and that is the way that we bring health to people. And that has been the prevailing paradigm for the past century now. And uh, just as a side note, John D. Rockefeller Sr. did not have an allopathic doctor. He practiced naturopathic medicine. So good for really? fit for me. Why, why am I not surprised? 
Yeah, not surprising, <laughs> is it? But anyway, like, so those are specific. It's like all the oligarchs not taking the vaccines now. <laughs> or eating the GMO foods, as King Charles and exactly. others um, tend to uh, avoid those. So those are specific examples. If you can shape the education, you can shape an entire society. And we are definitely seeing that today. So as in all of the areas that you're pointing out. But uh, I, I tend to think, uh, first of all, yes, the fact that the schooling system as it exists today, which we tend, because we've been, we've grown up in it and we've been normalized into it, we tend to think this is, well, this is just the way it is and has always been. But no, it hasn't always been this way, where you divide children into age groups, age cohorts, make, uh, 25 to 30 people sitting in a room day after day with bells regulating when they are s stop thinking about this subject and start thinking about this subject, always directed by a teacher sitting at the front, basically grilling them on memory, mem memorization questions. This is not the natural process of learning by a long shot. So how did it develop specifically? And there is a specific historical development of what we now think of as schooling that you can trace, and that has been traced by people like John Taylor Gatto. He was a New York State Teacher of the Year, uh, who ultimately ended up resigning his position because he said, I can't indoctrinate these children anymore. And he um, wow. traced this back, for example, to the, uh, the Prussian education system, which arose out of the defeat of Prus the Prussian army at the hands of Napoleon at Jena in, I think it was 1850 or something along those lines. Um, it was a crushing, horrible, humiliating defeat uh, such that the, the German people, the Prussian people, had to really soul search about what, what on earth happened, how did we get to this point, what can we do about this, and they decided what we need is to create a system of indoctrination where we can basically train young children to become dutiful soldiers for their fatherland. And that's what they set about doing. And they came up with the system of schooling that we understand today. That got transplanted to America, say, in the uh, late 19th, early 20th century, and promoted because at that time it was very, very helpful for a fastly urbanizing um, uh, economy in which there were more and more people flooding in from the farms into the cities to work in factories. Well, we maybe don't need so many soldiers, maybe we do, but at any rate, we definitely need good factory workers who will be conditioned by the bell. They'll know that when they hear the whistle, okay, time to start working, and then when they hear the whistle, then it's time to stop, and basically conditioned for life in the factories. And that is still the form of education, that schooling, really, that we've been indoctrinated into to this present day. But we don't really need to be indoctrinated for factory life so much these days, do we? Factory work is not t does not tend to be, at least in, in Canada, in the U.S., well, in Israel. Well, think about it. Is corporate, corporate world so different than a factory? You not come in, in at a certain in time, you respects, work on your no, computer. No. no, it is still conditioning people to look for authority from a centralized outside figure who will approve or disapprove their work. It's still being conditioned by, okay, now you will work from this time to this time. You punch yourself in, yep. you punch yourself out, all of that. So it is, it is generally useful for creating automatons of various sorts. But I think they are working on ways to more accurately refine um, this indoctrination to, for the, the modern age. And who is leading that, that, uh, that push, actually? Well, lo and behold, pe most people by this point know that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's primary global objective is public health. And that is the space that they are invested in globally. But their primary domestic objective, i.e. within the United States, is education specifically. And Gates mm -hmm. has been heavily invested mm -hmm. in and interested in the subject of education, specifically technocracy and education. How can we more of accurately course. measure and these results? How can we put yeah. computers in schools and get the, those to regulate what children are doing? That is where things are going from here. And that will, that will produce a very different type of person, ultimately, one that will be even more finely tuned, I guess, for the AI tech technocratic dystopian nightmare that we're being marched into. I think that will produce the type of uh, student or person that is even more obedient, that is even more that easily controlled, not just because of the, the technological means, but also because of the effect that the technology has on a person with the radiation, mm. with the, you know, your focus into this screen, 
it's much harder to then distract you when you're inside that screen. So I think we're going into a much harder reality for children who are Absolutely. growing up to be adults. Let me bring up an for important For them quotation. to break away from the matrix would be even harder, well, no? Exactly right. So um, when I was, I, uh, last year I did a, uh, a documentary series on the media matrix examining the history of mass media. And I did an online course about mass media and its development. And in that course, I was looking at speakers like uh, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death author Neil Postman. And in that book, he makes the point about people who say, at that time, he was writing in the 1980s about television as ultimately the nadir of human civilization, essentially. And he was making the point that people will say, don't worry, television uh, is going to be the new educational tool. And it will be so great for unlocking the minds of children and they'll be able to learn through television and it'll be wonderful. And so... You know, we'll have all these programs, educational programming like Sesame Street. And Postman's rejoinder was Sesame Street does not teach children to love learning. It teaches children to love television. And he, I think he was he hit the nail right on the head with that um, with that observation. And how much more true of, is that of that is uh, what is happening right now with regards to the push to, well, well, don't worry, we'll use computers to train children. No, we're not going to teach children to le love learning through computers. We're going to teach them to love computers and being in that screen exactly. space, interacting with people virtually rather than in real life. We uh, it, truly, yes. I really, truly worry for the future of the generation that is growing up more in mediated reality than in real reality. And I think we're already starting to see the effects of that, that miseducation when it comes to just basic human interaction. I think people are starting to become more and more like the machines that they are interacting with and starting to lose the actual art of human connection, which we've all, hopefully, if, if you're of a certain age, you grew up before the internet and before the ubiquitous screen everywhere in your face at all times. We just had to learn how to interact with other people. But there is a generation growing up that is not getting that same, interact that same education. They are learning how to interact with virtual avatars. And that is a very, very different thing. That is very concerning. And I think it's up to us parents uh, and adults to then step in uh, into a child's education system and be able to, even if they do still go to that system, at least try to balance it for them, which is what I'm trying to do with my son. And, you know, I'm seeing how hard it is to control where they're taking them. Sure. And there are so yeah. many pitfalls. There are so many traps along the way for them that you have to make them aware in advance so that they know to identify it themselves exactly. or at least help that's, them when they fall that's into the, the important part. We've got to underline <clears throat> that because as a parent, of course, you would love to protect your child from the world and completely cocoon them so that they won't be affected by any of this. Yeah. But that isn't really helping them because at some point, hopefully, if you've done your job as a parent, you're going to have to let go and they're going to go out into the world by themselves. And if they are not capable exactly. of actually taking this stuff on and dealing with it themselves, then they're going to be lambs to the slaughter. So we have to, we have to teach children how to think, how to learn, how to defend themselves from this onslaught, this psychic onslaught. How to discern, how to identify. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I talk to many friends or people who are asking me, are you talking to your son about everything that's going on? And I tell them, hell yeah, you, you, you must, yeah. you have to. And in fact, I think they're taking it a lot more lightly than we are mm -hmm. because they're, you know, less attached to everything. Mm -hmm. So it's much easier for them to understand and, and follow. And so I always encourage people to speak to the children, obviously speak to them in the language they understand, but yes, try to, to yeah. mediate it for them. Um, okay, I want to I want to ask you about climate change because that's how you finished your beautiful doco, and we are here now, right, <laughs> with the climate change bullshit, uh, you know, on us, upon us, yeah. um, and uh, you know, I want to ask you quite simply, how do you think it's it's working for them? Because I have my opinion, mm. and I'm seeing what they're trying to do now, but after taking the blow of COVID, 
Uh, I don't know if this is intentional or not intentional. I think with COVID, they didn't succeed as much as they would have wanted to. And I think people are a lot more suspicious now, plus they're heavily obsessed with just living, just getting by, yeah. so they don't really have time yeah. to buy more bullshit like they're trying to sell them. And so how do you think it's working for them and how do you think climate agenda is really going to tie up you know what i think what they're really wanting to achieve with climate is to take us to cbdc so they can lock us in to the system where they can control every every step we do and then control obviously food consumption um you know how we behave and where we go and how we move around etc so How do you think it's going for them? Because I think this is one of the last pieces in their agendas towards like ultimate control. Right. Well, okay, good question. And if you want to talk about marketing campaigns, <laughs> then I think the, the trick to get people to believe that, oh, it's, it's the big oil tycoons, it's Exxon and all those are polluting the planet and we're going to have to switch over to the post-oil economy and all of that. Okay, it makes such intuitive rational sense to people that they'll just completely yep. buy into that agenda and that was in some in some way maybe not the message but a core part of the message of the big oil documentary so as you say how big oil conquered the world is this the story of basically the buildup of the oil monopoly and this incredible amassing of economic and then political power on the back of that monopoly but it leaves that documentary leaves on the point of And so, how do we get rid of the big oil monopoly? Oh, I know, we'll transition to some green future, but why are the Rockefellers and others all on board with this agenda? What's going on here? <laughs> so if you continue on, why big oil conquered the world, the follow-up to that is the story of the 20th into the 21st century. And that is a fascinating story that is essentially the story of eugenics. It's the story of the yes. new, the new uh, ideology for the ruling class. There's always been some sort of ideology to justify why are certain people fit to rule over other people. And it used to be, oh, don't worry, the kings and queens were literally appointed by God to rule over you. So if you question them, you're questioning God. That started to, uh, to, to wear off by the late 19th century in the rational, post-enlightenment era. So they came up with a rational post-enlightenment justification for their rule over others. Our genes. Our genes are better than yours, and that's why we get to decide what happens to humanity. Of course, they've framed it in terms of uh, protoplasm and other such things, because they didn't even have a working genetic theory at that point. But that is essentially what eugenics was and where it came from. It is pseudoscience top to bottom, but it was very, very, very powerful uh, as a political influence, as a philosophical influence. A lot of people wanted to believe it, and so they did. And it became the rock star super science of the early 20th century, until the Nazis kind of sullied the name of eugenics. And so you have the American Eugenics Society, the British Eugenics Society, these founding eugenicist organizations fretting and in their internal documents worrying about, well, what do we do now? And literally coming to the conclusion, well, we have to start practicing crypto eugenics, eugenics by other means. We won't call it eugenics, but we'll find a way to essentially build this up. And so you have the American Eugenics society sharing for a time their offices with the Population Council, which was funded into existence by uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr. Wow, imagine that. So literally, you get this changeover from eugenics to uh, population, overpopulation, and it's an environmental problem. That's it, because you, you yeah. guys see what we're doing to the earth and all this pollution and everything. That's because there are too many people. So what we need to do is Well, I mean, we'll never come out and say this openly, but we need to cull the human population a little bit, right? And so you see the World Wildlife Fund and uh, the American Eugenic Society becoming the Population Council. You see all of this movement and the same characters, the Rockefellers and others, s moving into this field. And what becomes the overriding concern of this nascent environmental consciousness that was growing in the 1960s, Silent Spring and Rachel Carson and all of that, it starts to get shepherded into there is one and only one problem that we're going to talk about, carbon dioxide. And everything in the whole environmental realm and all these billions and ultimately trillions of dollars that are getting sloshed around in this new financial system 
are directed towards carbon and carbon dioxide and worrying about the the weather in the year 2097. We can't tell you what the weather will be next week, but we know 2097. So I know for people who have never really looked into this, this sounds, this is the step too far. And it's funny. I've talked about controversial stuff uh, over the past 16 years, as you can imagine. But by far, the most pushback that I ever receive is when I talk about climate. And that the climate science is not as settled as you, th as you are led to believe it is. But that to the side, the linkages, the monetary linkages of these big oil oligarchs moving into this environmental space and forming all of these organizations are voluminous, manifold. I've documented some of them, like, for example, Morris Strong, who was the leader of the United Nations Environment Program. He's formed the 1972 Stockholm Population Summit and uh, Rio, the Rio Summit in 92 and UN, UN Agenda, uh, tw the Agenda 21 or whatever they were calling it before it became the 2030 Agenda. And all of mm -hmm. that, UNFCC, all of that. This guy was the environmental crusader of the world, but he was also actually an oil patch millionaire who got his start working with uh, for Rockefeller connected businesses in Canada in the uh, Canadian oil patch back in the 1970s. What is going on here? Why is this happening? And basically the big picture is, yes, eugenics transitioned into carbon eugenics, essentially. And carbon eugenics is this system whereby we're going to ration carbon dioxide and your access to energy as a way ultimately of culling the population. And that is going to transfer into 21st century eugenics, which will take the form of technocracy. So for people who have never heard of technocracy, this was an actual political social movement that was arising specifically in the 1930s. It started in the 1920s. It gained popularity in the United States and Canada in the 1930s as a real political movement that, was, that had a lot of momentum. A lot of people were actually members of Technocracy Inc., which was this actual corporation, but also this political movement that was founded in the 1930s. You can look at some of the creepy pictures wow. of people wearing the Technocracy Inc. uniform with the Technocracy Inc. monad logo in, in the background and everything. Wow. It was a big deal. Um, but essentially, the core kernel of the idea was the, uh, the, the economic turmoil that people were experiencing in the Great Depression proved capitalism had failed. So what is going to replace capitalism? And what we need is to stop pricing things in terms of dollars and using this, this monetary system. That's the wrong way of doing it. What we need is technocrats, engineers, and social scientists, and people who know what they're doing to calculate the exact energy expenditures that will be required for all of the products that, are, that we're producing in society. And who gets to decide what products are necessary to be produced and how many and in what quantity and what color and all of those millions and millions of choices. Well, of course, the technocrats will decide all of that. Anyway, they're going to calculate the exact amount of energy that will be required for that, and they will be able to perfectly balance the energy inputs and outputs in the, in the economy. And so the entire economy will be structured around energy. And so their idea was they were going to issue energy credits to people, literally denominated in jewels. And those energy credits would be used to purchase items, and the items would be denominated in energy units. So however many units of energy it took to produce the item that you're buying. And if you run out of credits, you get credits for simply for being a member of the technate, which they're going to use to replace countries. Um, but once you run out of credits, well, tough luck. You're just going to have to wait. And... It was a crazy idea and a crazy system, and it required, even at the time, this idea that they were going to calculate everything that was being purchased in the economy in real time and who was buying what and all of this tabulation, which was absolute insanity in the 1930s. But hey, actually, now we're in 2023. That sounds like it's doable. I think we could do that. We could track everything that's going on in the economy. And it might be a bit crazy to price everything in joules, but how about if we create an economic system that is based on, oh, I don't know, carbon ration and carbon credits? And how about if we tie that into your social credits and social credit score and a universal basic income and a digital ID so that we can issue you a CBDC? Everything is coming together around this very, very old idea. But essentially what it is, at base, is yet another justification for the ruling class, the technate, the, techno the technocrats who will be able to rule over the system and decide exactly what everyone needs and give people their credits so that they can survive. But if you're, if you're a bad, if you're a bad citizen, well, maybe, maybe we take your credits away and, well, 
you probably starve to death, but oh well. Uh, this is the system that we're moving into, and I think people need to see the historical development of these ideas so that they understand this isn't just a bunch of stuff that's just happening willy-nilly. This is part of a coordinated plan that's been going on for a very long time, and that often involves literally the very same families, like the Rockefellers and others, um, in, this, in the creation of this plan. Wow, I had no idea about the techno the technocrats in the 1930s. That that is something new for me. I wasn't aware, and for me, it ties beautifully and perfectly with what they're doing now at the World Economic Forum with mm -hmm. the personal carbon allowance. Mm -hmm. And I think they may have found also a solution for the problem they had in the 30s, where if you run out of uh, credits, you just have to wait. But now mm. they're saying if you run out of credits, you can buy more. So if you're wealthy, mm. you have the ability right. to then mm. have more credits, okay? Sure. Completely insane. But, wow. um, but there is a logic to it if you understand that this isn't about really improving society or anything along those lines. It is about creating a more perfect system of control for the oligarchs, who yes. have always existed in yes. every society throughout human history. But you're a crazy conspiracy theorist if you think there's an oligarchy that's functioning today, even though they literally get up on stages at the World Economic Forum and elsewhere and proclaim that they're going to do the Great Reset. And all of this crazy nonsense. Yeah, they out say it all out now. Yeah, it's, it's not crazy. Even I can't. I can't understand how people still call people like you or me uh, these names when, when everything is out in the open. That's it. Like they're not hiding it anymore. They're not even bothering. They're writing books about it. They're talking about it openly. It's th this is like the highest level of madness. It really is. Okay. Yeah. I must ask one last question related to the doco. By the way, it, for those of you who want to carry on from How Big Oil Conquered the World, the second one, Why Big Oil Conquered the World, they're both on the Corbett Report uh, website under videos. So go there and find them. Um, so my last question about that is, do you see how and if, if it's possible at all to try and reclaim or recover all this knowledge that in a way was lost when medicine was taken over by allopathic um, you know, medicine and, and we, we've lost a lot of what we had for naturopathy and, and homeopathy. Mm. I know there are schools today that are obviously teaching it and doing it, but I, I mean, n not so much the knowledge, but more like the trust in these systems mm. and Will it ever go back to to the you know real medicine that that is curing people and healing people rather than making them sicker yeah. with pharma? Yeah, it's a How good do you question. think we can we can yeah. recover? Well, it's things? it's very important because certainly there are quacks in allopathy and in naturopathy and in homeopathy. There are there are quacks that are just grifters that are just trying to, and that's actually how. The Big Oil documentary begins. Most people don't know that John D. Rockefeller's senior's father um, was a bigamist snake oil salesman, literal snake oil sales salesman, selling something called rock oil from town to town, basically scamming people. It'll cure your cancer, honest, and then getting out of town before he was run out with a pitchfork. Um, that was... That was literally the roots of this. So there are salesmen, uh, scammers, and quacks out there. So people do need to be discerning when they go into the space. But having said that, yeah, there there are uh, remedies and uh, and and f foods and herbs and things that have been employed by humans for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And this knowledge does exist. Uh, it's just heavily suppressed. So I'm tempted to say that you can tell. Um, when when something is being actively fought against, there's probably a reason for that. So if they're trying to ban naturopathic medicines and uh, and herbal remedies and what have you, maybe maybe that's because they're effective. Unfortunately, it's generally not as easy as that because uh, if it were that easy, great. Then anything that's banned is good, and anything that's censored is wonderful and what have you. But unfortunately, no. Some of the stuff that is banned and censored is quackery. It doesn't mean it should be banned or censored, but it just doesn't mean that it's necessarily good for you. So, uh, again, unfortunately, like everything, it requires discernment. I think the real question that you, uh, that you were alluding to there is the trust in institutions, because that is fundamentally what underlies the system as it exists now, is that people simply trust 
Well, you've been to medical yeah. school for however many years. You've studied this stuff. I don't know. So, I, I mean, I'm not going to argue with my car mechanic. I don't know about the car. I'm not going to argue with my doctor. I don't know about how bodies work. Um, and that's, unfortunately, the, what most people are going to, the, the position most people are going to take. Now, I think the last few years has woken a lot of people up to the idea that maybe this isn't such a precise science as they were saying. And maybe when they tell you exactly as they've been telling you in the climate science debate for the past few decades, it's a settled science. There are no questions. And if you question, you're a bad person. Well, now people are hearing that on the medical front, and that will probably push at least some people people who maybe can still be saved over towards the, the line of uh, maybe I should start thinking about these things for myself. I think that is really the win. If there is a win to any of this, it is getting people to think more critically and skeptically, not just of the institutional establishment, the Rockefeller medicine, what have you, but also of the alternatives. Because again, as I'm saying, I think there are scammers and quack, quacker, quack, yeah. <laughs> out there on all sides of this issue. It is up to us to use our own discernment. And that is why what I ultimately advocate as my baseline, though I don't really care what other people think causes health or sickness or what have you. That doesn't affect me. What affects me is when people yeah. think they have authority over me to tell me what I have to do or cannot do with my body. No, no, no. My basis is health freedom. And everyone has the right to decide for themselves what they believe the risks are, what they believe mitigate those risks, what trade-offs they are willing to make in order to mitigate risks, or what, what risks they are willing to take on. Uh, all of that is your decision, and your decision alone, you are a sovereign human being who gets to de determine all of that. I think if we can get to that space, just that determination that you don't get any say whatsoever in my health and what I do with my body, and I don't get any say in yours, then I think we have the basis for construction of a system that at least is human. And human does not mean infallible. In fact, human means fallible. Um, there will be people who do the wrong thing or believe the wrong thing. But c'est la vie. That's up to them. That is, their, that is their prerogative to be right or to be wrong or to believe themselves to be right when they are wrong and everything in between. And that's fine. Um, but unfortunately, when there is some outside health authority that gets to decide what the science is and what everyone must do, that is an anti-human system. And I think that's what we've got to fight, fight back against. Amen to that. Okay, so just before um, we finish, I have one last question for you, and it is going to touch on a little bit of a controversy, the topic of Israel, where I am based. Uh, we have some stars coming out of, out of Israel, not me, <laughs> Benjamin Netanyahu, for example, Yuval Noah Harari, which you, which you know. And, and it's a, quite amazing about Yuval Noah Harari. I just want to let you in on how he's perceived here. So he's one of the most admired gurus in Israel, speaking on stages at the demonstrations that are taking place right now for about four or five months in a row against the right-wing government and Benjamin Netanyahu's regime. Uh, he's talking about the risk of dictatorship under the right-wing government. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a risk to our democracy. Remember that sentence? Yeah. And many, many, many still buy this bullshit, mostly obviously leftist. Uh, they still think left and right here yeah. in Israel. They, they haven't gone over, they, they didn't get over it uh, here. And so I, I'm, and you know, I'm seeing this for me, this is mind boggling. It's crazy. And it makes me laugh when I see how they, they eat all of his bullshit without questioning anything, without checking what he goes around the world mm. and speaks about in stages everywhere or in newspapers in English. They just feed off all of his empty words in Hebrew trying to yeah. get them to revolt against the current regime without thinking what he what he's preaching for mm. around the world. It's just a crazy situation. So if you talk to the average where, person on the street in Israel, they will know Harari for his yeah. political position, but not on what he's saying at the World Economic Forum and places like that. Exactly. Mm. And they will know his books and the fact that he's an historian. They mm. don't think that it's weird or peculiar at all that he is handling predicting the future well he's supposed to be an historian you know he he's they they don't question anything they know him for his political views and the fact that he is 
respected around the world and being invited to speak in all these international conferences and he's got nice English and that's all they care about. This is how superficial it is. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, when this kind of wave of demonstrations is happening around uh, Israel right now, to me, it's a color revolution. It looks like, you know, the U.S. or the deep state is funding these demonstrations, trying to signal to Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, we control here, not you. You know, you should play by our rules because he's He, he, he came to visit in the U.S. recently and Biden didn't meet him, you know, so, so there's, there's some power game going on here. He's signaling to the BRICS, um, the countries that he wants to, like, do business with Saudi, with the Saudis for oil and things like that. So there, there are geopolitical moves happening around. I'm curious about your view about Israel's role I know, you know, I'm not talking about Israel's role in general. Obviously, this is a, a detonator or an explosive barrel that you can flick a switch at any moment and, and use Israel as a decoy or, or a, a diversion from anything that's happening around the world. But I'm talking specifically now in like the bigger scheme of things yeah. around the world. What is our role? What is Israel's role? And who, right. how are we being played here? Right. So I gave like a broad context, I hope. You can right. talk and, to that. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, this is the detonator question because uh, people treat Israel differently, fundamentally differently than any other polity on the planet. But it, like everywhere else, there is a vast chasm between the oligarchs and the people playing their power games at the top of the power pyramid and the average person on the street. And what the average person on the street believes is happening is generally dimly related to what's actually happening. <coughs> and it's mind-boggling to me But so apparent, uh, if an alien species came down and looked at the, uh, the earth and what was happening, and they saw that your choices as an Israeli is either to be on the so side of Yuval Noah Harari and what he's for, or Netanyahu and what he's for, and those are your choices, and there's nothing, nothing anywhere else. Don't look anywhere else, folks. That's crazy. That's insanity. But It's most insane. People, most people fall into that trap. And that is exactly the same in every country I've ever been to or looked at in my entire lifetime. Uh, unfortunately, it's you get this choice or this choice. And occasionally there might be a slightly different color involved on the, one of the fringes that you're allowed to choose from. But fundamentally, it's left or right. And everything uh, basically is boiled down to that, which is nonsense. Anyway, I certainly have no great love for Netanyahu and uh, a literal criminal. And I've talked about his past and the things that he's been involved with, with um, yep. Milko and the shipping of Kryton triggers to uh, the U.S. back in the 1970s and all of this craziness. Um, but having said that, it's not like then, well, good, I hope Harari and his folk get, get in power and show those right-wingers what's what by putting in the technocracy that will be ruled over by the AI godhead that Harari's always talking about and all of this craziness. No, no thank you. So I think, like anywhere else on the planet, what we really need is an understanding that the, 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 the left-right paradigm that we've been given is a false template of reality, and there is a different dimension, and that's authoritarianism versus human freedom. And you can have authoritarians yes. on the right and authoritarians on the left. And if those are your only choices, guess what? You're going to end up with some sort of authoritarian that's going to be talk telling people from the top <laughs> down how to live their lives. The basis for uh, actually combating that ideology, of course, is going in the opposite direction. But if you're only looking left and right, you can only move left or right. No, the opposite direction is yeah. towards human freedom. And that's where we have to yes. be going. So. That's that's my overall picture of things, and I'm not. An no, this is a perfect answer. This is great. The the thing the thing that people their brain their brain starts to fry when they start to think. Well, actually, Israel is kind of like every other place on the planet, and the same types of tricks that are being used to puppet the population over here are being used in Canada and Israel and everywhere else on the planet. It's the same game. And it's basically, generally speaking, a war of governments against their own population. It's just pe yes. different factions that are competing to, to rule over the, the public. Yes. A million percent. Thank you so much for putting it so, so clearly and, and, and well said. Thank you so much. Okay, so... Lastly, I just want to say, you have a great show on your website called Solutions Watch, and you're mostly focusing on, you know, 
you're, you're raising the problems, talking about them, obviously. You have a lot of knowledge, but you're also focusing on the solutions and how we can think differently and act differently and do things in the world that really make a difference in our lives. So I encourage people to watch Solutions Watch on various topics. But really, my last question is, you know, people tell me, okay, Efrat, we, we get where it's going. Like, you're explaining to us what's happening, where, where they're taking us. But what is the solution? That's like the first question I'm being asked, especially from people who are in fear or are confused of where to go now. And, and you know, I know you're a big believer in solutions, but I'm curious to hear from you, like, why are people always seeking so quickly mm. for solutions and yeah. not like... Are, are they too afraid to dwell on the problem to deepen yeah. the understanding yeah. of it and like really stay there for a second you know, and maybe it, have yeah. the solution pop from right. the the problem rather than trying to have right. someone dictate for mm. you what the solution exactly. is? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the real problem is sometimes the solution, right? Um because exactly <laughs> for that 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 reason people are looking for the silver bullet No, there's got to be one thing that you're going to say that's going to change reality around me and everything so that I can just sit back, munch my popcorn, and, and the world will be better. And you haven't said that thing yet, so it's not, you don't have any solution. <laughs> and, th and so, unfortunately, <laughs> that exact mindset is the mindset that allows these political demagogues to come in and say, don't worry, I'm going to fix everything. I All have you have to do is vote for me. Yay. And we've seen how well that works out. Um, so, yes, yeah. unfortunately, the real problem is getting people to understand that there is no silver bullet solution. The, hey, guys, here's this simple thing that will solve all problems in the world forever. That doesn't exist. But there are ways that we can improve our lives. And surely, yeah. surely that is better than sitting around waiting for someone else to come on a cloud and hand me everything on a silver platter, right? It does involve work. It does involve actual changing your life, which is not comfortable and sometimes involves real work. Sometimes I can offer things that people can do that are free and simple and relatively easy that they've never thought about before that will hopefully improve their lives somewhat. For example, I sometimes look at very specific, very small little, little problems, but things that I think are important, like, for example, salting your data. This came up recently. Someone said, oh, I really liked your solutions watch on salting your data because it was a simple idea I'd never thought of. And basically the idea is when you are being asked for your information, your name, your date of birth, your whatever on some website or signing up for some app or something, yeah. don't give them your real information. This is not rocket science. Mm -hmm. It's pretty easy. But why on earth would you tell the you know Microsoft or whoever my exact date of birth? No, thank yeah. you. It's a simple thing, but it is, it is important as we move further and further into this technocracy. But then someone will come along and say, well, actually, I mean, the only real solution is to get off of technology altogether. All right. Yes, I agree. I think technology is heading in the wrong direction. So what do we do about that? Well, there are the examples of ideas for decentralized communications. There are examples of ideas of physical media that we should be preserving instead of just going to digitize everything. There are, there are a million different things that we can look at and work towards But of course, it always comes back down to the individual, what they are willing to do, what they perceive the yeah. problem to be, how much they perceive that affects themselves, how much they're doing this out of sort of just a general love for humanity. What are their specific goals? What are they willing to risk and what are they yes. willing to do for this? It always comes down ultimately to the person who's listening to someone delivering ideas for solutions, what the solution will be and what it means for them. And so that's that's kind of always the the... It seems like a Sisyphean penance that I'm I'm doing here of trying to roll this rock up the hill and say, look, you can improve your life somewhat if you were willing to take these steps. And then it rolls back down as people say, well, I'm not willing to take those. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Let's try it again. Let's try it again. But anyway, I am throwing ideas out there. And the purpose of Solutions Watch is hopefully to learn from ideas as they are put out there, see what works, see how they can be adopted to each person's individual situation, because everyone's going to be different at a different stage yeah. in their life in a different context it's going to apply to them differently but hopefully the ideas and more even more fundamentally on a more philosophical scale instead of looking at problems and trying to look at propaganda and look at what the oh look at how they're lying to us look at what's wrong with the world if we could convert the mindset of people to being 
hey, I can improve this. I can make my life better this way. I can make this change, and that will result in this. If we can at least gear people towards thinking in that direction, I think that will be an improvement that, uh, who knows, that's the ripple effect that you can never calculate. Some idea that you have that you talk to someone and they talk to someone and that gets passed around and suddenly something happens and you'll never in a million years know it resulted from you having that conversation with that person. But, hey, the world has improved. I think that's an important part of... Of, of change in general that doesn't get written about in history textbooks because it's incalculable and un, unnarratable, but is probably the way humans really progress to the extent that there's any actual progression in history. I agree with you 100%. And on that note, the, the work that you do and the information and the ideas that you put out there, I'm sure are touching and making a difference in so many people's lives. And, you know, on behalf of everyone that has never told you that, thank you very much for the work you do. And uh, you guys go to the James, to the CorbettReport.com website, and you can also support um, James and become a member of the Corbett Report. Uh, and that will help um, to continue this amazing work that James is doing. So I want to really thank you for your time. This was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for using your voice and who you are, you know, becoming an amazing journalist. I don't know many journalists that are doing a more amazing work than you, you know, apart from Whitney, which I love. I love Whitney. <laughs> she's, she's, she's pretty adorable. good. I, she's I amazing. Yeah. <laughs> she's pretty good, huh? <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank um, you very much for that. Really, you're you doing, for doing what amazing you do. work. Thank I you. want to I want to put the thanks back to you and to everyone who gets out there and starts a podcast or starts spreading information, doing it in whatever way they can. I appreciate that. It, that's how we're going to make a difference. Yes, and I hope more and more people do that. So thanks, James. Ciao. Uh, how do you say goodbye in Japanese? Uh, goodbye. Uh, sayonara. <laughs> no. Sure. Sayonara. <laughs> Ciao, bye-bye. Thank you.